Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Thanks a lot. Blessing. And thanks, you guys. Merry Christmas. Welcome. Like Bucky said, we're in this series called The Unopened Gift. It's all the the gifts that we left behind, uh, the gifts maybe we never got, definitely the gifts we never opened in terms of culture. And there's a passage here that I think describes very well what it's like when we get caught up in in a cultural Christmas without God. Uh, So have a look at this. This is from Matthew 13. It says, For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, And they have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot and they cannot and they cannot. They cannot turn to me and let me heal them. This is the words of Jesus. Heal means um, like soul healing. It means like come to me and receive forgiveness. And this series is about opening the gifts we normally forget, that we leave behind, that we reject. Maybe because we're too busy. uh, Or maybe just too consumed, too distracted. Maybe we're in too much pain. Maybe this season evokes those feelings of loneliness or, or hopelessness or, or insult or injury uh, in this Christmas season. And, and there's a gift that we need to open in terms of our worship. That's the gift that we're opening. This box symbolizes this great big blessing, this great big gift of today. What we're talking about is worship. And there's something that the wise men teach us. This is the big idea for the whole morning. Are you ready for this? Here it is. The wise men and their worship realignment. The wise men... And their worship realignment. These strange foreign men who are used to just seeing right here in the nativity scene have so much to teach us. And we're going to jump into that in a second. But first, an illustration that proves this point. Okay? You ever, uh, well, I have these kids, and and they're the main thing that teaches me. I learn from the environment of my kids. My wife and I rarely have seven babies, uh, age seven and under. Yes, shocking for the five or six newcomers who don't know that. Uh, so that's my learning environment. What happens for a child? I know some people will never get past that. They just tuned out for the horse of the day. Okay, welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name is Ben. I'm associate pastor. We've got a ton of babies at our house. What happens when I've been in the kitchen and I just, uh, you know, just cook up this amazing, holy gift of a meal for the kids, and I bring it over to the table, and I lay it in front of them, what are their responses, typically, if you know young children? Yeah, there's a couple different responses you usually get, like, Dad, where's the cat? I want more ketchup, or that's all the fries that I got? I want that kind of chicken nugget, or conversely, like, is that all? These are the types of incredulous responses you get from the small children when you've played up their food. We've maybe experienced that even ourselves when we're a little bit hangry. That's our response, and the solution for my kids, which is the solution for us in opening the gift of worship in this not-so-crazy sometimes Christmas season, is having our honor, our trust, our confidence, our thanks, our gratitude. And my kid does that, we'll test them. We'll say, you know what, you need to stop what you're doing right now. And I just want to hear three things you're grateful for. I want to hear three things that you just forgot to say thank you for. And gratitude, of course, is just this one sliver of what it means to worship. I want to give you a much deeper and broader definition of this, of what maybe for some of you this church term, this Bible term, this idea. It's not just a a word, but an idea of worship. And we're going to do that by looking at the story of the wise men. That takes place in Matthew chapter 2. Get your Bibles out. Get your phone out. Follow along with me. Of course, it will be on the screen, but uh, the context is brilliant and amazing. You can pick up so much more. We're starting in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. 
after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to what? We have come to what? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Since the beginning of time, people have been asking that question. Where is God? Where is God in terms of the beginning of of man and and while we were placed on this earth? Where is God in uh, suffering, war, evil things? Where is God in my personal hour of need, in my personal pain? You see, first century Judea, uh, Palestine, uh, Israel uh, was a gnarly place. They were asking that question, the audience, the, the, the audience of the Bible, really the Jews, Jesus' people who he came to, were asking that question. They lived in this environment where they had a tyrannical government over them, Rome. They had a system through Rome and through their, their Jewish leadership, King Herod, who you're going to learn about in a second, that there was a triple taxation system. You think taxes are bad today? Man, they were robbed to the point of them taking their children if they couldn't pay. That's how it worked in the system. It is rough times in first century Judea. We have rough times maybe in Orange County, but these people, man, they knew that question, where is God in my suffering? And yet, when I read this verse, it made me think of another passage. If you Search for God, you will find him. That's a verse. It actually comes from uh, the book of Jeremiah, 1,600 years before the time of Jesus. This guy, Jeremiah, he was a messenger. They call him prophets. He said this. A lot of people know chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, there's this verse. People frame it, and they put it in their, their kitchens and their bathrooms and all over. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future to prosper you. Okay, but if you keep reading, this is what it says, verse 12. And this is uh, on the screen now, Okay. This is uh, Jeremiah sending a note to, to a Jewish people who are again stuck in an awful position. They're in exile. They're having a horrible time of it. Verse 12, when you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. When you seek me in prayer and what? When you seek me in prayer and what? You will find me available to you. You will find me available to you. What is more available than a baby? If you missed the start of the series last week, Bucky preached, and he said that baby Jesus is like baby Finley. Baby Finley is my uh, 11-month-old. It's like chunk of a little baby girl. She's amazing, so soft. Like that's how available she is. Her softness like brings you in. I just wrote in my notes, okay, JC has baby Finley. Good, good, I got it. That's nothing more available than a baby. Go back and listen to last week's, okay? He's available to you. So imagine you've just been invaded, because this is the Jews who, who's getting this letter 600 years before the, the time of Jesus. They've just been invaded once again by this foreign, tyrannical government. They've, 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 there's bodies just, you know, lying the floor, and, and the whole city has been torched. You have just enough time to grab your kids and flee, and you're on your way out. And God, using Jeremiah to write this letter, speaking through him, really, to this people in their time of despair, if that's you in this Christmas season, listen. He can be found by you, the same age-old question. But how? How is he to be found? How is he to be found? In worship and in prayer. It's so cool. You guys, I thought about this verse. I read it sometime, maybe let's call it years ago. Where's that verse? There's that verse. It's so cool because if you look for him, you can find him. He allows himself to be found by you. And then I went back, and what do I find in the context? The how behind it is through worship and prayer. What's he trying to say? What's he trying to tell us about our worship realignment? Look for me and you will find me. That's how we're to begin to realign our worship in this season. Our worship has to go somewhere. This passage will tell us where it rightly belongs. Okay, let's look at verse 3. 
uh, let's see here. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why is the king alarmed? And why all of Jerusalem with him? Why are they freaking out right now? Well, well, because when our worship, listen to this for a second, this is so critical. When our worship is put back in its rightful place, it is unsettling to the kings and kingdoms and systems of this world. It is unsettling for them. Because that is power in that place. There's power in our worship where it belongs. So think again. Uh, of my kids. Again, this is my, this is my learning incubator, okay? So God's just teaching me all kinds of stuff. Just take, for example, little Sheppy. Little Sheppy is my four-year-old son. Uh, many of you who know me, uh, maybe you even just figured it out because you just met me this morning. I'm full of a little bit of energy. I'm full of a little bit of passion. It's not a show. You can find me during the nine to five, and that's just how I am. That's how God wired me. Little Sheppy, little four-year-old Shep, okay? Times it by two, times it by four, times it by six, this is really cool Old Testament biblical idea where, where this guy, um, uh, Elisha, he was the pupil of a guy, Elijah. He was like, you know, a student in training, and he had one prayer request, and he said, God, give me a double portion of what my mentor Elijah had in terms of his gift, his talent, his strength. And I prayed that for my kids. I might want to take back with Sheppy, okay? Because little Shep is wild at heart. He's just bouncing off of chairs and rolling on the ground and wrestling his newborn baby sister. He's all over the place. But what happens is so funny. What happens if I tell Shep as a consequence, you know what, you have to go upstairs by yourself right now. All the rest of the family is hanging out down here. What happens when I take away his audience of worshipers? He becomes sheepish like a little church mouse. He's up there. He's like, it's so hard. It pains him. He loves the audience. God bless him. He loves people. He's a relational little guy. He goes up there. You hear him weeping. He's like crying down from above. Daddy, just let me give me another chance. Let me come back down. You take away the audience of worshipers, and you've taken away their power. Now, now, hang with me for a second. The opposite is also true. When you put the worship in its proper, rightful place, there is power. There is power that comes from getting that audience with God in and through you, in your relationships, in this Christmas season, as it's redeemed for you, if this Christmas season represents tough things right now. Under verse 4, it says, After assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea. They said, For it is written this way by the prophet, Verse 6, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no way least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people, Israel. Let's talk about these priests for a second in this reference. That second half is a reference that comes from Micah 5. Micah is another prophet. He's another messenger from a few hundred years prior. Let's talk about the priests and why, why Matthew, who's writing this letter, the book of Matthew, why he's making this reference. You see, uh, we don't want to miss this moment because this is the inspiration for the whole series. We have this gift. In the Jews, these priests, these priests who are in Herod's court, they're his little, you know, henchmen, these little hyper-religious kind of missed-the-point henchmen are in the office, and, and they've missed the, the deal. They had a message from Micah in the Old Testament, the old books. Look at the Bibles, one, by, one book, 66 books. And these old books, all over the place, there were messages and signposts. Look for this. They gave all the way down to the how, where, and what of the Messiah, of the Savior, of Jesus and, and his coming. They spelt it out. And they were given these notes like a beautiful, just a bow on top, little precious little gift 
And yet somehow they missed it. Jesus came and went, and the very people, the very people who were supposed to capture it and then communicate it, missed it. You want to know what their job was? Like like the priest's actual job description was? Uh, Their job was just to make worship count. To make sure worship counted. That was it. They had these temples, this one temple in particular that Herod had a huge hand in building. Actually, I think it was father, his dad. We'll have to go proof check that later. But they had this massive temple, 40, 50 feet or yards high and wide. It's beautiful, immaculate. And there was outside spaces for guests. And there was an outside corridor for women. You know, it's a tough first century life. And then there's the inner sanctum, the most holy place where the priests were able to dwell. And their whole point was to be the checkers for your worship. The gifts, the offerings, the animal sacrifice, that was the system of the old way. Their whole point was just to check and make sure that the worship mattered by this series of endless rules and regulations. What's the principle, you guys, as we realign our worship in this Christmas season and our whole lives moving forward? Sometimes, sometimes religion gets in the way of relationship. Sometimes the hyper-spirituality gets in the way of walking with God. The point is that the, these men, these men, these priests, they knew God. They knew the word. They would have memorized it. That was part of their deal that qualified them to be in that inner sanctum, was that they memorized even the first five books, and some of them the whole the Old Testament. Pages and pages they memorized and knew, but they weren't walking with God. Now, now, for some of you who are newer, or maybe it's just a great reminder for those of us career Christians in the room, but what, what, what do you mean walking with God? How can anyone really do that, Ben? Where there's beautiful references of what that really means. Think about Genesis. You have Genesis chapter 3. It says that God was in the garden with Adam and Eve. They heard him coming, you know. It may not have meant that God, you know, don't get hung up on the literal sense. It didn't mean that God pulled up a park bench in the garden and just kind of, you know, chatted it up with them. But his presence, time spent. With God. Again, go back to Bucky's message. The entire message was on presence, time spent. What about Jesus as he grows up a little bit from baby age and he's a boy and his parents and his family, they go and visit the temple for their annual pilgrimage. And and, then the whole family, because in that century you travel together in family, it's not like you'd be just counting each kid. And he gets lost and, and his parents start to freak out, where is he? And then they go back to the temple and they find him there and they're like, what are you trying to do to us, man? And Jesus is like, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? We've heard it before. We've heard that text before. But there's a Greek word there, avi, that, that Jesus, little boy, preteen boy, Jesus uses for his father that's never been used before to describe the God of the universe. And it's like this term of endearment, like daddy. Like, didn't you know I'd be with daddy? That's walking. That's walking with the Lord. As I read this text, we, can, we, we, we may miss the gift for the same reason. If our worship, if our attention is elsewhere, we may miss a precursor. What I'm trying to say, a precursor to our worship is walking with. If you want to experience that power that I alluded to before of renovation and even healing in your relationships, in your world, the systems in which you live and work and play. If you want to experience that, part of the precursor is to walk with him, to have the habits of spending time with him. So for you in the room today, uh, during Christmas time, you know, whether you're connected in the church, whatever way, shape, or form you may be, maybe you're a visitor, we, like the priests in Herod's court, we might miss those signs. We have this beautiful gift with a bow on it. But in our world and in our relationships, our worship, it, it, it's got to go somewhere. 
We, we send our, our praise, our adoration, our highest form of respect. Those are other words for worship. It's got to go somewhere. We're wired that way. We're wired to have devotion that, that gets invested somewhere. And so the challenge that I read in Matthew 2 is, is it in ourselves, the worship? Is it in our current relationships to save us that we adore and we elevate beyond the place where maybe they belong? These priests had everything. Their job was to just make sure worship counted, and they miscounted the greatest gift of all time. So you see, the key to realignment is walking with. As we realign in our worship, the key is to walk with. Let's look at verse 7. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and look carefully for the child when you find him. Inform me so I can go and worship him as well. I'm not going to have you repeat worship there because I don't think he means it, okay, as we hang on and see what happens. Why else do we miss the gift? Why else do we leave that gift unopened, this gift of worship? Well, I think the, the worship of self is very critical. We see this in our relationships at work and our young, sweet, selfish children and our marriages and our dating relationships. All over the place, we see how rampant the, the worship of self goes. And yeah, okay, we expect to hear that from church on Sunday. No, you can expect to hear it from church on Sunday because it's so rampant. We need to have this in check. And let's use the case study of Herod. We have a beautiful, or really an ugly, an ugly case study in the case study of Herod. And let's look at his life, okay? So tell me about Herod. Herod is this puppet king of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, they're the tyrannical government, but they realize that the Jews are such a, an influential populace that they have to do something to kind of organize them or manage them. So they put this quasi-Jewish leader in place as a, a you know, figurehead king, and that's Herod. He's already got an inferiority complex. Do you get that? He's kind of like, he's just on lease from the Roman government. He's already got a complex. His whole life consisted of consolidating power. You guys have read the history books, whether it's just the cultural history, medieval history. What do the kings do? In order to consolidate power, well, they just murder everyone. That's what they do. That's the surest way to do it. And so later on, we're going to find out in the story, you know, about murdering babies. That's, that's Herod's command from the throne is, you know, in that locale, just so we can make sure we don't miss Jesus, just murder any of the babies who would be around that age. It's gruesome. It's crazy. It's genocide, right? It's wild. Not for Herod. Herod already has this track record of killing spouses, of killing sons, his own sons, just to consolidate power for self, for the highest form of worship of self. However, in all of his plotting and all of his scheming, there's one thing that Herod grossly underestimates. Because even Herod needs one thing to ascend the throne. What is that one thing that Herod must have to ascend the throne that he can't necessarily control? For any, any king to successfully ascend the throne, you need followers. You need worshipers. You see, for a second, let me just talk to the Christians in the room. Uh, you guys, we cannot be Christians in name alone. We cannot be Christians in affiliation alone. We have to have an acknowledgement. And that's what I would say worship is. Worship is the ability to acknowledge, wow, God is in his throne room in heaven and I am not him. That's a great acknowledgement. That is a great declarative statement that we have to make in order to be counted as his children. We can't just have the label alone. That's a wonderful precursor for our worship to make any sense or to have any fruit or to have any power is the fact that we've acknowledged him, but not just acknowledged him. What other precursors are there? Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this. 
After listening to the king, they left, and once again the star they saw when it rose led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they shouted with joy. As they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they bowed down and they worshipped him. I want to make two points about worship. That's our big idea this morning, right? So we're going to go deep and deeper and deeper because you're still not maybe clear. What's even been def- operating definition for worship this morning? Let's go even deeper. This word for they bowed down, the technical, the original language, it means they fell down. It means they fell on their faces, flat out, fell down in worship. They fell down. They threw themselves down as the utmost sign of devotion and adoration and praise. But you know what? Before we can just fall over in adoration, before we can just merely acknowledge, yeah, what's up, Jesus? Good to see you, God. I give you a heads up on that. Way to go. I see you there doing your thing. Just give him a, a little nod, a little tip of the hat to the God of the universe. Okay, before we can just merely acknowledge, there's a precursor still. I want to read this from a great commentary that I saw. It's not on your screen. Just, just listen for a second. This is a wonderful definition. Of, of what it takes before we can get to that place, before we can come into church on Sunday and we listen to the songs, and even when we have a new one, even when we have a new one, I'm not used to singing that new song, but even though the, the words are up there, I can come to a place of worship. Why? Listen to this definition. It says, worship, defined as a human response to the perceived presence of the divine, a presence which transcends normal human activity and is holy. The consciousness of holy presence brings forth a response from those who perceive it. The response is worship, and it may take many forms. This will give you peace for, 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 to understand. It's not just what happens on Sunday morning. You don't need a building to do it, this is what it says. The response may be private and intensely personal in the form of prayers, confessions, silence, meditative experiences. Get your holy yoga on. Go ahead. It's great. Experiences of various sorts. Jesus, leaving the disciples behind in a place called Gethsemane, went away from them to fall on the ground. What does that sound like? To fall on the ground and pray alone to the Father. Before we can worship, here is our precursor. We have to have an awareness that the divine, who is transcendent, who is supernatural, this is a natural realm, the earth we're on and the universe that we inhabit is a natural box. God is outside that box as a supernatural being. He's totally transcendent, but he enters in. Does he not enter in? In the form of a very accessible character, a baby. You know, God gave me this really cool moment um, about two weeks ago. Uh, we had this church church member, you know, pretty fairly long time church member. His name is Joe Haas. Bucky talked about him last week. Joe Haas uh, passed away a couple weeks ago at the age of seventy seven. Uh, he lived a up and down sort of life, uh, but in the last few years came to an authentic relationship with Jesus through this local community, through the men of this place, through the families and couples of this place. And just two weeks ago, Joe was at the door greeting like he, like he always did when it was his assignment. He had a name tag made up just especially for him, Joseph, it said. And it was just two weeks ago that, that I saw him there greeting, and, and then I find out a week later that he's passed. And there was a moment, I'm just going about my business in my office, I'm working, and all of a sudden I just thought of the most <laughs> awe-inspiring picture of Joe, who I'd just seen a week before, standing before the throne of God, actually in heaven, in eternity. The Joe who I'd just seen with flesh and bones, right here at the door, with hair and skin, standing at the door, is now, because the Bible suggests this, that everyone will go to meet him. He's standing before God, and literally just in my 9 to 5, I'm standing there thinking, oh my God, I could picture it. 
Just think for a second, you know, when you put your head out the window and the wind's blowing past, or you're watching a really crappy video and, like, the camera's in the wind and it's soaring past you. Or maybe there's a roaring fire and you've captured that on camera. It's just like, (sighs) the severity of it. And what happens to your bowels that go down that area where bowels go and that feeling, that awe-inspiring feeling that you're seeing I'm struggling to describe is now where Joe Haas is. That same God entered in through the form of a baby is available to you and to me. Before you've seen or heard or tried to even fathom, acknowledge that God is available to you. But till you meet him, you may not be able to come to a place of authentic worship. Because just how holy he is and how holy other he is, he still comes near. That's the Christmas message. It's available to you as a beautiful, wonderful precursor to your heart and your mind understanding worship. There's lots of people I sit with, you know, um, they're new to church and so they, they just don't know how music works. How the song structure and how a church service is organized. They have great honest questions like, why so much music? It's mostly dudes. I think dudes just don't like to sing, which I appreciate. I get it. It's fine. You know, we don't like the sound of our voice. We're not trained singers up in her. Okay, so I I understand that. Um, But but the thing that I, I feel like I get to come to every time that I have these talks and these meetings with them, and that I would say to you the purpose of our worship when we come up here on a Sunday morning, the lights, the sound, the arrangement, the musicians, their voices, is to do one thing. Is to cut through the chaos and the crap of our daily lives and possibly, maybe just even a little bit, bring us into that throne room experience that I just finished describing. It's possible. I believe with all that I am that it's possible for you. If you haven't had that experience yet and you're thinking maybe it's not possible, then then we're going to have an opportunity here very shortly to do that. There's one more thing, though, I want to say before we begin to wind down. The second thing I want to say about worship as we realign our worship with these necessary precursors, you have to understand who Jesus came for. As you look at that verse and you think about these wise men, who did Jesus come for? Was it just the Jews? Was it just the religious elite? Jesus comes for the rich, the poor, the unexpected. These wise men, a great person from staff put it so clearly, we're used to seeing the picture of the nativity and the wise men are like huddled around. And they're on bended knee, all three looking so regal. Maybe they're, you know, Christians. Not. You know, maybe they're just really good Jews or whatever. They're, they're part of the picture. They made it into the picture. So they, you know, they're like already figured it out. The text says that they came from the east. Do you know what that means? It means that our first Gentile, so the, those who are newer to the Bible, Gentile means like an unbelieving or, or, from, or pagan is a you know, more gnarly term for those who are unchurched, those who are not Jews, let alone Christians. They came from the foreign lands as they come from the east. So maybe Persia or Babylon. These are not just strangers or foreigners. They were outright enemies at times. And yet these people, these outsiders, these astrologers, were included in the most important moment in history. One of them, at least. That's who our Jesus came for. His first interaction with a Gentile wasn't the centurion, it wasn't the Samaritan woman, it wasn't the Canaanite woman. It it was day one, Jesus' life. Who's an audience there but an outsider? If you were an outsider this morning, you're a visitor, you're checking out church, you're giving it another chance for Christmas time, I would just say to you, he came for you where you're at today. He came for you where you're at today. He's accessible to you. And wherever the questions are that you're asking, 
And wherever you are in your search point of finding where is God, where is the king, how can I find him, he's here and he's available to you. The very first people that got to meet Jesus and the very first people that, that responded out of worship because God did something in their heart and their mind, God met them, even as foreigners and outsiders, is available to you and me. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? Not for the healthy, not, but not, not for the wealthy, but for the sick. Because healthy people don't need a doctor. They don't need a spiritual doctor. They don't need spiritual righteousness. But he came for all, healthy, sick, and everyone in between. So here's how we wind down. Ben, you guys can come on up. <clears throat> it says that they opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. As a result of their worship, they brought gifts. As a result of their worship, they brought gifts. You, you think you know what I'm going to say next. Yes, so get your pocketbooks out and go ahead and bring your offerings forward so we can receive gifts. No, I'm not going to say that. That's a really good thing. You should learn to trust God with your finances. But he brought gifts. What were the gifts? The gifts were essential oils and, and pure gold. That's what they were. That's what they were. What? You don't believe me that it was essential oils and gold? Okay, it wasn't quite. They hadn't learned how to distill it into a liquid form yet. But they brought frankincense and myrrh. I have an actual frankincense essential oil in my shelf at home. Don't I, babe? Do I have frankincense? Frankincense is a very real essential oil. You can look it up later. I'm not selling anything. Anyways, the point is frankincense and myrrh, what does it point to? They're sweet-smelling. They're incensed herbs. The herbs are a plant. They're a plant that affirmed the fact that he was Savior. Because in his wounds, he would have incenses placed on them. In his, his being wound up in cloth to be put in a grave, uh, his body would be glorified in that way, would be well treated in that way. The herbs just point to the fact that he was the authentic deal. He was the real deal. He was the savior of the world. The, the, the gift that the some of us have yet to open. And they brought gold. The only gift fit for a king. The only gift that makes any sense for a true king, the one and only true king. You guys, I want to learn from all sides here in this story. I want to learn from the wise men who are outsiders. And sometimes in my heart, I'm farthest from God because I'm selfish like Herod. Just put me in the King Herod camp. Go ahead, put me there. In the ways that I forget to serve my wife, in the ways that I lack and ignore my kids in serving them in a selfless way. Put me in the camp of the, of the, of the priests who had all the signposts. Do you, do, do you know where Jerusalem, where the priests were hanging out in the holy, holy, pure, beautiful temple in Bethlehem where Jesus was born in a cave. Do you know the distance between those two locations to this very day? Do you know how far away it is? It's five miles. The gift that was right underneath the nose of the guys who were supposed to make sure worship counted, miscounted. They were the ones that were turned to. They could quote everything. They could quote the scripture. They could tell you the where, how, when, what, and yet they had a five-mile journey to make, and they missed the gift. You have the king who was opposing Jesus. You have the Jews who was ignoring Jesus. You have the wise men who were seeking Jesus. Where are we going to fall on that line this morning, in this month, and in the new year? Where will we be aligned? Where will we be aligned in our worship? We oppose the king because we let too much of the distractions and the chaos and the drama filter in. Well, we ignore the king because we've been in the midst of, of worshiping self. Or, or will we seek the king with, with all that we are, knowing that he's accessible, that he's daddy, 
that he's a willing father, that he wants to meet you right where you're at. We're going to have an opportunity to worship right now. And, and all I can say, I'm speaking to that story about the, the transcendent throne room of God. All I can say is that um, for me personally, all I, can, I can just speak from my experience. And the thing that allows me to come on Sunday morning, it doesn't just happen on Sunday morning, maybe Monday through Friday in the early dark hours when I get some silence with God. The thing that allows me to come before him in authenticity and in a heart and mind of worship is knowing that I'm, that I'm so broken, that I'm so imperfect, that I'm so thankful God sent a little Finley, a little Finley Jesus baby that I could touch, that I could taste, that I could see, that I could hear from. That's the thing that evokes a sense of worship in me. It will be different for every one of you in the room. Come to him with a, with a spirit of thanksgiving. Come to him with a spirit of gratitude. Come to him with a spirit of anger. Who wrote more Psalms? Who, 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 who wrote more worship passages than anyone in the Bible but David? Are all of them perfectly tied up in a bow? No. Some of them are gross and heated and profane, but he brings his heart to the altar of God. He brings his heart and mind to the space of God, and that's what we have an opportunity to do right now as we worship. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for myself. Pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much. God, thank you for the gift of new and full life through your body in your blood. Thank you that you came to be accessed by every single one of us in this room, no matter where we're at on the journey, Lord God, even if we're in process, even if we have doubts still, Lord God, our worship must go somewhere. So let us wrestle with that question, I pray, for every single person in this room. Let them face up to that question this week. Let them not escape it, Lord. And God, I pray that in this moment, as we bring up our voices and our hearts and our minds to you in worship, that there'd be an alignment in our heart that translates into power, and all the things that we do, all the things that we touch, and all the things that we say. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.